Hey everybody, and welcome back to Wish a Pot a Star, the unofficial Disney Song by Song podcast. This... <laughs> yes, this is the last episode of Dumbo, the last time you're going to be hearing that annoying Amanda Elephant sound. You love it, Frodo. You love it. It's it's growing on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm Frodo the lawyer, and who Hello. are you? I'm Amanda the person. What's yeah. up, everyone? Yeah. That's the last time I'll do that noise for now. For now. Um, for now. Once you... we get to those heffalumps and woozles again. Boy, it's going to be all over the place. Yeah, and if you want us to make it all the way to heffalumps and woozles, <laughs> we're going to need a little support because, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make it there, but... The more love you give us, the more we can grow. So make sure you check us out at wishapotastar.com. Make sure you check us out on our Facebook page, also under Wishapotastar. And but I mean, like this is episode twenty now. That means we're like a real podcast. Yes, we are. Those first nineteen barely count, but twenty—that's when podcasting really begins. Yes, this is where we hit our our peak with finishing off Dumbo. Yeah, this is also where yeah Dumbo hits its peak. Dumbo because it ends <laughs> because. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, no. Dumbo, I do think that the movie actually grows. We talked a little bit about how the first few songs are kind of random. Why is there a train song? Why is there a working song? But yeah, that train song is the best part of this whole movie. Right. But it Watch is... your mouth about Casey Jr. <laughs> but it's random. Uh, leading into this, we had Pink Elephants on Parade, which I see as kind of a climactic, energetic piece in this movie. And that leads right into this scene where we have a tree and these crows up in the tree. I mean, you think, like, this is pretty cool, just some crows and a tree, an elephant wants to fly. What Mm. could be wrong about this? What could be wrong, yeah. Frodo, is it racism? Is it racism? It's always... It seems like it's always racism. Yeah, man, it might be... It might be racism. There might be a problem with that, but... I I just wish we had someone we could ask, like, is there anyone we can pull out of our, like... You know, our guest carousel mm. of spinning guests that we can pull out for this? Well, as you've said before, we are two white people, so it would be really helpful if we could get someone who had a different experience, who was not a white person, who knew about the impacts of racism, that could maybe help us. So, Literally anyone who knows more than us would be amazing to bring on at this point. So joining us today is <laughs> Mr. Josh Spiegel. Now, Mr. Josh Spiegel, are you, you're not a white man, right? You're, you're something different. Uh, I had to bring you guys down. I am absolutely a white guy. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Oh. I would curse, but by the bleeping noise that Frodo edits it out on is such a bad one that I'm just going to say, <laughs> ah. Podcast canceled. Uh, no, no. I was joking. We, we, we do have a third white person to add to <laughs> our little crew that's going to discuss this song and the r- historical racism in Disney. But he's not just any white man. He's a white man who's written a book about stuff. So, Mr. Josh Spiegel, uh, thank you for joining us again. Can you please give us a little bit of your own background as to what brings you here today? Why do you write a book about racism in Disney if you are, as you say, a white man? Well, I think that the topic fascinates me because of how Disney treats its history, uh, which I think is very fitting for this discussion. Um, I think... My interest in it first really rose up when I was considering Peter Pan, a movie that I know you have not yet discussed on the podcast. You've got a ways to go before you get to Peter Pan. But as you, I'm sure, already know, and as I'm sure you will discuss in detail then, that movie has some really jaw-droppingly offensive stereotypes. And the same is true for another very well-known Disney film that I'm sure you'll talk about, even though you're going to have to talk about it a movie that you won't be able to see officially, which is Song of the South. Mm-hmm. Another movie with very offensive stereotypes, but Peter Pan, like Dumbo, 
is a movie you can just rent anytime you want. Yeah. Song of the South, <laughs> not so much. And so that that decision was kind of what led me down the path of writing the book Walt's Original Sins, Disney and Racism, which people can get wherever fine books are sold, specifically Amazon.com or ThemeParkPress.com. Um, and I just, it, it fascinates me how Disney now considers racial issues when they talk about their history, if they talk about their history. You know, this is a song, When, when I See an Elf and Fly, that it's one of the most well-known Disney songs, and yet people don't really like to think about the context of that song and whether or not it is very racist, and there's even debate on whether it is racist, but there's certainly, at the very least, some very, very troubling <laughs> issues sure. here. Even if the character that Cliff Edwards plays isn't named, I'm probably spoiling this for later, uh, uh, isn't named Jim Crow, but, there, well, there's debate. There, the, the archives say his name is Dandy Crow, which is not that bad. Yeah. Jim Crow would be really bad. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, the performance is itself pretty troubling. But yeah. I, I feel like that's, we're probably going to get into details about that pretty shortly. So <laughs> Yeah, we'll get into that a little more. I, I do want to point out for our listeners that might not be familiar with you, you mentioned that you were examining Peter Pan and you were examining uh, Song of the South and some of these other movies. Can you please just give a little background on why you were examining those and your podcast, Masterpiece Cinema? Sure. Sure. So Masterpiece Cinema is a show I've been doing for over seven years. So it's ah, been... OG podcasting game. I, yeah, I mean, I was around before Serial, which, as we all know, is the first true podcast. Um, but uh, I, I've been doing that show for about seven years. And in the process of doing the show, I wrote a lot more about Disney. And writing more about Disney kind of led me to wanting to write about some older Disney films and contrasting them with newer films. So in Walt's Original Sins, I compare and contrast Peter Pan and Pocahontas, Song of the South, and The Princess and the Frog. And I also talk about films like Dumbo. Uh, there's other newer films like Aladdin, Mulan, movies from you know, the Disney Renaissance that begin by having very real racial controversies and end with being a lot more open-minded, a little bit more progressive than even earlier in that decade. So just kind of exploring the different ways in which Disney has depicted racial issues or has failed to depict racial issues sure, and sure. non-white characters in its films over 80-plus years. Uh, and I do have to ask, since we've looked at Snow White and we've looked at Pinocchio... And now, and also a little bit of Fantasia. There's the obvious example of the the black character in Fantasia, but uh, there's been other instances sure. where we've kind of come across examples, maybe not of racism, but of where race and foreignness are used not in a way of showing a culture negatively, but almost in a way of saying, wow, look at this fancy other culture. Mm -hmm. We even saw it in Pink Elephants on Parade, this exoticism. Look, it's, it's the Middle East. It's the, uh, the Spanish dancers. Would you consider that stuff that we've seen so far racism, or is it something else? Well, I mean, realistically, being another white person, I don't entirely know how, sure, how sure. much I can call it racism versus it not being. I think mm. certainly what's depicted in Fantasia is troubling enough that Disney felt the urge to censor it in future yeah, places. Yeah. In Pinocchio, I, I'm going to assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you're referring to Stromboli. Right, Stromboli, the, the Russian and puppets. And also his puppets, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and I was going to say, Fantasia has similar stereotypes in the Nutcracker Suite sequence, where you have the one sequence that's like flowers that are meant to look like they're Asian or Russian, and and that's mm-hmm. cutesy, but also kind of weird. I, I think Stromboli <laughs> is a case where I suppose, like that to me is a much grayer area. I can mm-hmm. see the concerns, but that's not something that I've come, certainly not a film that in my research I came across as being a truly hotly debated film in terms of its depiction of non-white or, you know, cultures that seem foreign, quote unquote, you know, right. certainly not to the extent of those other films or the, the one that I, I will admit took me off guard at first until I read more about it was The Jungle Book, a movie that mm. I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but less so in terms of its depiction of King Louis mm. versus, you know, that character, how he was originally conceived versus how he is presented in the final film. But yeah, Pinocchio, I think, is a grayer area. Nice. All right. Well, then, I guess that leads us into Dumbo. And Dumbo, from the beginning, or very early in the film, we have the Song of the Roustabouts, which is an example of potentially racism. It might not be as explicit as When I See an Elephant Fly because we don't have the characters coming out and speaking in a necessarily African-Americanly stylized way. But they're still dark figures who are some kind... They're not maybe slaves because we're after that time period, but they're some sort of subservient class. Um, What is your thought on Song of the Roustabouts in terms of how it depicts race? I mean, in some ways, I think it's worse than this song because... I think I would agree with you on mm, that one. The one one word you did not mention that I think is really important here is it's not just that they are dark-skinned characters. They are literally faceless. Mm -hmm. They don't have facial features. Now, there are production reasons why that was true. As I'm sure you've already discussed, this was a very low-budget film for Disney. They did not have a lot of money available to make the film. That's why it's so short. That's why they didn't have a ton of money to begin with. So I'm sure that's one of the reasons why those characters don't have faces. However... It's (laughs) It's <laughs> really unavoidable that these yeah. characters were talking about how they're happy roustabouts working in the rain to get these circus tents pitched, and they are helped by elephants, <laughs> suggesting that they're on the same level as yeah. animals who are caged on the trip. I, I think that there are a lot of problems with When I See an Elephant Fly. I think the way that Cliff Edwards speaks and sings is also unavoidably offensive, but right. there's a lot of... like. At least you're talking about the the purpose of the song here makes a little bit more sense in yeah. the story. Song of the Roustabouts feels much less like it needs to be in the story as much as, boy, the elephants have it pretty hard, and so do some of the humans. Like, there's yeah. not much <laughs> to it. Right. I think I would probably put, like, this particular song, Elephants Fly, closer to appropriation. Still with a lot of racism elements, but as opposed to Roustabouts, which are just, like, pure racism bad this one I feel like is more like an appropriating of African-American culture, but by using a white actor to perform it, that's where you hit the racism elements mm-hmm. a lot more. Right. I guess you could make the argument, I'm not necessarily saying that I'm making this argument, but you could make the argument that, hey, we wanted to show an African-American song to get our audience that could potentially be African-American people interested. That's why we put in When I See an Elephant Fly. There's no African-American audience that's going to identify with Song of the Roustabouts in any positive manner. So I think that that is, uh, mm-hmm. is definitely another... Uh, yeah. I, I another wouldn't think you'd have him. a lot of... I mean, I, I 
And I know you were just making the argument to make the argument. I don't think that they were particularly thinking about the African-American audience potential when they put in this song. I think it did for, you know, exoticism and things like that. Although perhaps, Josh, you can speak more to that. I mean, I haven't read a whole lot as to the specific decision to, A, make the crows this way. But but I I would also agree that I doubt they were considering that larger audience. Because certainly the Disney of this era, both in features and shorts, has a pretty long history of uh, depicting cultures that aren't the normal culture, quote-unquote, the foreign cultures, in a way that is genuinely troubling, whether it's in movies like Dumbo or the Jewish peddler of the wolf in Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf that has been since excised from the short because of how almost cartoonishly, literally cartoonishly offensive <laughs> that depiction is. I mean, so should we get more into the song? I feel like we're talking a lot about the idea of the song, but before we can talk about it too much and analyze it, we want our audience to know what we're talking about. Yeah, let's go into a little bit of the beginning of the song. So the way the song begins, the crows encounter Dumbo and Timothy Mouse in the tree, there's a brief period where they're confused as to how they got into the tree until... Tim- and this is the tree they were just in because they got drunk and flew into a tree. Right, yeah. right. Uh, they drunkenly got into the tree. That's why they don't remember, of course. Timothy, yeah, Who hasn't done that before? Uh, me. <laughs> but Timothy Mouse <laughs> deducts that, hey, maybe Dumbo flew us up into this tree. Uh, seems reasonable <laughs> to him. Big ears, wings. And he quickly decides this is a great thing. And he declares Dumbo to be the ninth wonder of the world, and he's really into it. The crows, on the other hand, think this is ridiculous and stupid, and that's where the song begins. They say, you know, we've never heard of such thing as an elephant fly, but they've heard of a bunch of other fun, punny, noun-verb combinations, such as a peanut stand, a rubber band, uh, a needle that winked its eye, and so forth. So I guess let's take a step away from the racist elements and just talk about the lyrical content of the song. What do you think about that, Amanda? So if we're looking at this as just a jazzy number, like, I think the lyrics are really clever. Like, all the things about, like, all the other weird things that they've seen before they saw an elephant fly, like, hear a rubber band. Like, it's it's just, it's good puns. You know, I love a pun. Um, And, like, I think it does a really good job of doing that. I think the jazzy elements are great. Um, It's got a real fun hook to it. As just a jazz number, if you take it away from everything else that exists in this, I think it's really fun. Mm-hmm. I think that it does a good job of showing off the characteristics of these crows, that they are witty. Now, again, these things could also be examples of stereotypes about black people, mm-hmm. but specifically looking at these crows, yeah, it, it does a good job of portraying the crows quickly and characterizing them in a way that is a fun song. I think it probably reminds me most of Everybody Wants to Be a Cat from the Aristocats. Like, that sort of just, like, fun jazz number. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fun fact, that song is one of the reasons why my fiancé Dustin started to play the trumpet in the first place, which I think is (laughs) very good. Is is that what inspired you to pick up the trumpet, Frodo? No, actually, the reason I wanted to play trumpet was the wonderful thing about Tiggers. So, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be fair, amazing song. Amazing song. I also, like, want to add that I think that this beginning of the song sort of supports my theory that Jiminy Cricket, or not Jiminy Cricket, um, Timothy Mouse is just Jiminy Cricket in disguise. Because if you wake up in a tree, why is your first thought, I must have, someone must have flown us into this tree? Like, wouldn't it make more sense for them to have climbed the tree? I know elephants can't climb easily, Hmm. but they can probably climb more easily than they can fly. Right. If you guys remember, we had on Natalie 
in the Baby Mine episode, and she explained to us that elephants cannot even jump, let alone fly. So the, the saddest thing I've ever heard about elephants. So, so the whole thing is pretty far-fetched. Timothy, but he does seem pretty convinced. So you're saying it's because he's Jiminy Cricket and he's somehow uh, imbued with this uh, evil, hellish force that we've talked about before? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, he, he basically, you know, orchestrated this event so that he would cause Dumbo to fly. So he knew this was going to happen. He caused it to happen, and there's like... You know, like, I, I watched Bridesmaids the other night, one of the best movies ever, and you know at the beginning when Kristen Wiig is, like, a, like pretends to be asleep after she's put her makeup on and everything, mm-hmm. so that John Hamm will be, like, think she's just that pretty when you wake up? I think it's that sort of thing where he, like, got everything arranged to make sure they were, like, secure in the tree and then, like, went to sleep again, quote-unquote, <laughs> and sort of be like, a snore! A snore! <laughs> you know, how people fake snore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that is possible. <laughs> That's my abbreviated theory corner for this episode. He must have been pretty surprised then when Dumbo actually pulled it off and flew off the cliff. He probably thought that that was the end of Dumbo. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know if he, like, I'm still conflicted on whether or not, like, if he actually gave him the magic to fly, or if he, like, didn't expect he would fly, and then he was like, oh, shoot, he's <laughs> flying. This is, I thought this was some <laughs> sort of weird death pact. Well, Josh, you've been sitting <laughs> listening patiently to us talk about crazy theories that have been in other episodes you haven't even heard. What are some of your thoughts about the things we've talked about so far, specifically the lyrical contents of the song, maybe the musical or jazzy elements that we've talked about? And if you want to talk about whether or not Jiminy Cricket is secretly Timothy Mouse, you can do that too. Well, Timothy Mouse would secretly be Jiminy Cricket, who is secretly a dark elf. (laughs) I might have missed the dark elf explanation. Um, I... I, I do think it's a fun song. I think along with Casey Jr., it's probably the most fun-sounding song in yeah. the film. There aren't a lot of songs in the movie, and I, you know, look out for Mr. Stork is cute, but it's a little bit more of a trifle. Uh, I, I think that it has a good enough pace, and I like the the Hall Johnson Choir as the other crows, that they're maybe a little bit more natural-sounding to the lyrics than Cliff Edwards <laughs> when he says things like, what is it, hmm. I be done seen about everything. I mean, it just... Yeah, you know, sounds... the normal way that white people talk. Sure, of course. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think that's the unfortunate element when you listen to the song. It's that it's right. a fun, jazzy number. But as much as I am not a fan of everyone wants to, everybody wants to be a cat, at least they got, you know, Scatman Crothers to be the main singer for that song. So it sounds a little bit more natural than it does when a white guy has to attempt to sound a little jazzy. Mm. Um, I think that the, the lyrics themselves are, are pretty playful and things that I definitely would not have picked up on as a kid. I appreciate right. it a lot more as an adult than I, you know, lines like I heard a fireside chat. I saw a right. baseball bat. Yeah. I wouldn't have got that. Yeah. <laughs> so again, it's stuff that it, it, it's smart enough that it, it pleases kids, but I'm sure adults even back in the forties were smiling at some of those witty lyrics. And you mentioned the Hall Johnson Choir. Hall Johnson, for those of you who aren't familiar, he was an African-American musician. He was a composer. He arranged music. He did spiritual music. I also found that he went to Juilliard, where he played violin. So he was a very experienced African-American musician, and he led a vocal choir, which was called the Hall Johnson Choir. Now, you would think, well, maybe they would bring in him to be the lead crow. You would, wouldn't you? Yeah. But as we've been saying, it was in fact Cliff Edwards, the voice of Jiminy Cricket, who played the lead crow. At least according to Wikipedia, the lead crow's name is Jim Crow, which... Yeah, let's let's talk more about that. Um, Josh, you were talking something about how in the official like records it's no longer listed as Jim Crow? 
The Disney archives suggest that it's Dandy Crow. I, I don't entirely know that the Jim Crow moniker is confirmable. Like, I think that that's one. I, I think that that originated from Richard Schickel's book, the Disney version from the late 1960s. And, uh, you know, not to suggest he is wrong, but I think there is at least some debate on what the name of the character is, since it is worth pointing out. No one calls him by a name right. in right. the script, and this is the era when there weren't end credits that would tell you each character name and each performance, so you can't verify that way what the character's name is. I mean, I think it's a case where that would make it doubly concerning or problematic. It's bad enough to just have Cliff Edwards there when you could have easily had mm. someone from the Hall Johnson Choir perform that. You know, I think Hall Johnson himself voices one of the other crows, so it's not like. Yeah. They couldn't get him to perform. (laughs) Right. It's like the whole thing where everyone says that the beast's name is Adam, but, like, that's never really confirmed anywhere, only with racism. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Do you have any background about why Cliff Edwards was selected? I I don't entirely know, but I think, you know, it's worth pointing out this is an era when Disney would utilize a lot of the same actors. This film features the first vocal performances from Sterling Holloway and Verna Felton, who both were in a lot of other Disney films over the next 30 years. I think it was a case of Cliff Edwards just being there at the right time. I think also there's a little bit of history on Cliff Edwards that he eventually, later in his career, had some pretty rough times, and he would spend a lot of time at Disney just to see if he could get work. And this might have been a little earlier in his career to have done that, but I think that might have also contributed to the choice. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see some examples in the music of the song where they might have thought that Cliff Edwards' voice would work well. When he starts doing his form of scat or whatever, we have seen in Pinocchio where Jimmy Cricket in the song Give a Little Whistle pulled off some sort of vocal scat-like... <laughs> scat-like... Scat-esque. Yeah. He was vocalizing musical instruments. That sort of thing, perhaps that fits the strengths of the lead crow in this song. But again... The the background of scat singing is from jazz, which is an African-American music form. So uh, although Cliff Edwards could pull this off, he should not have been the one to pull it off. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that's one of my, my big questions. Um, and Josh, I'm hoping that you can talk on this a little bit. Is like the main issue in this song is the main issue that Cliff Edwards is the one voicing it. I mean, there's certainly other issues as well. You know, the way the crows are portrayed is just like this happy go lucky like banter group that hangs out on clotheslines or whatever is like not the best portrayal of things that are of animals that are coded to be African American. But is the biggest part Cliff Edwards? I mean, for me, it is because yeah. it's pretty obvious that. That's not like it, his voice just sounds wrong for it. It sounds like not quite the same, but it's like if a if a parent tries to speak in the slang that their kids use, it just sounds <laughs> fake. And again, the song is bouncy enough that it's able to weather his voice. But his voice is just like you mentioned the scat. It's just that's not something I need to hear ever. And. You know, this is in a period of of American history where there weren't as many concerns about white actors adopting traditionally African-American slang or portrayals. But it's something that obviously is a major uh, roadblock to anyone watching it now, I think. And And more to the point, it's. It would have been even weirder if he sounded like Jiminy Cricket. The fact that he's clearly <laughs> attempting to try to sound different makes it 
mm-hmm. more aggressively noticeable, I think. Right. I mean, it's vocal blackface is what we're yes. discussing here. Like, yes. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, it might also be worth mentioning. I'd love to talk a little bit about the history of scat uh, yeah. just because we're seeing such a poor example of it here. I think it's good to, to show the medium a little bit of, um, of due, yeah. due honor there. Uh, so just a little bit about sort of the history of scat. The Basically, most of what people consider the first scat song, people consider Louis Armstrong's 1926 recording of Heebie-Jeebies um, to be the first song to employ scatting. Um, but there are a lot of earlier examples of that. Um, and you hear it a lot of like ragtime music in like the 1910s sort of that era so you'll have like gene green al jolson and uh, gene rodemick paul whitman harry barris like a lot of those early singers um are using the sort of scat just making up sort of monosyllabic phrases and sounds to fill time um in that area one of them in fact actually said um let me find the quote for it now oh yeah um Morton, uh, Jelly Roll Morton, uh, boasted, Tony Jackson and myself were using scat for novelty back in 1906 and 1907 when Louis Armstrong was still in the orphan's home, which is a pretty sick burn as burns go. But Armstrong's 1926 song um, was kind of the turning point for the medium. He was recording heebie-jeebies and his music fell to the ground and he didn't know the lyrics of the song, so he just invented a gibberish melody to fill the time and thought it would be thrown out, like that he would just get rid of that cut, but that was actually the take of the song that was released. Um, and so there is sort of the origin of widely popularized scat. Now that story is like, there's not a ton of actual historical backing for it. It's kind of apocryphal, but, but still, it's still a killer story, um, which I really appreciate. Yeah. What I want to know is how did he get out of the orphanage and become <laughs> one of the greatest jazz musicians? It Was it like an elf where he just wandered into another musician's bag and then he ends up in, <laughs> uh, not the North Pole, but maybe like New Orleans or something. Yeah, that, that's actually, I'm reading the Wikipedia article now. It says that's what happened. It says that Elf was actually just another version of whitewashing popular history. Gotcha. It was actually supposed to be a bl- about a black musician. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, Josh, you said that the most problematic part is Cliff Edwards, but the fact that the Crows themselves, uh, even if the other ones are portrayed by African-Americans, such as I think James Baskett does one of hmm. the voices, uh, do you see a problem in the fact that it's still Disney screenplay written by white people using terms like boy and brother and using the syntax of African-Americans, whether or not they're accurately the syntax of African-American speech, they are intended to give off that effect. Well, it's definitely... There's a lot of choices that are definitely troubling. I think it all kind of builds up when you then say, put a white actor behind the microphone. He can do it just as well as anybody else can to sing as that character. That's where the issue, I think, becomes mm. most Now, right. one thing this actually reminds me of is I just recently saw the movie Coco for the first time, and I don't know how much you have you have looked into Coco, but that's... Yeah, no, no major spoilers. I'm still waiting to see it. It's a good movie. It's good. I don't, I'm really excited about it. Well, that's another example of Disney, which is a company that is led by white people, mm-hmm deciding to do a uh, in that case it's a whole movie but to write dialogue in the style of in that case it's sort of Mexican-American type of speech. I know that the characters are supposed to be from Mexico but they're speaking English so it's kind of this Mexican-American accent and syntax they're taking up. Uh, have you First of all, have you looked into Coco at all? And secondly, if you have what is the difference in how Disney handled that movie versus Dumbo? Well, I think one of the obvious reasons is that the film was co-written by someone who's Mexican. So that's 
the first. See, it's crazy how that works out well, isn't it? Right, right. <laughs> they, you know, I, I definitely think, to be fair, Disney started off on a really bad foot with that movie because I'm not sure if either of you remember a few years ago, well before Coco had a name, when we just mm-hmm. knew that they were making some film mm-hmm. themed to Dia de los Muertos, the company tried to copyright Dia de los Muertos. <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah. Which, surprisingly. Oh, Went over poorly with Mexican culture. I know, it's weird. So, you, so weird. So, they obviously started off on a pretty bad foot there, but after they brought Adrian Molina on to be co-director and co-writer of the film, I think that, along with the fact that, you know, there were consultants working on that movie to make sure they were getting things right. There was an active attempt. And there has been, I think, in a lot of other recent Disney films with non-white cultures like Moana from a couple of years ago, The Princess and the Frog, which I know also had some controversy early on. The decision of saying, we know, you know, this is, I think, the closest you get to Disney acknowledging missteps <laughs> like Dumbo. Them saying, right. okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. We're, we may make mistakes differently. We may make different problems, but we're not just going to dive blindly into another culture and assume that we're just going to get it right. Yeah, I think that's as- a big difference. Yeah, as um, Alexander Ovechkin, one of the lead scorers for my hockey team, the Capitals, um, they just they ran, won the Stanley Cup pretty recently, and I'm still riding that high. As he said at the beginning of the season, we're not going to be sucked this year. And I think that's a good sort of attitude that Disney is trying to bring to things now. Um, but, I mean, you were you talked earlier about how in your book you sort of compare, like, um, various movies to each other. And, I mean, are we seeing, I know that in some of the most recent movies we've had some really good progress are we seeing sort of a forward-moving push that's consistent across Disney history, or have we just had a couple of good examples recently and it's still a problem um, that we need to watch out for? I think it's definitely been better in the last 10 to 15 years. I, mm-hmm. You know, One of the things I talked about in the book is, you know, I, I like Aladdin as a film, but there's no, there's a, almost a an active lack of trying to make that scene <laughs> appropriate to Middle Eastern culture. You know, there, sure. there's... The famous fact that they had to rewrite one of the lyrics in Arabian Nights afterwards because of controversy. But even if that hadn't been the case, you know, Aladdin is voiced by one of the guys from Full House. Hey, it's not a no dissing Steve. Steve (laughs) is the man. I really hope that DJ ends up with him and not that stupid other guy in Fuller House. So fingers crossed. Oh, Frodo, are you watching Fuller House? Of course I'm watching Fuller House. Oh, no. <laughs> there are so many other shows you could be watching on There's Netflix so right many now. other shows on Netflix. You could just be watching Coco on a loop, and you you'd could. still do better. That's, uh, yes, I would agree with that. I have seen a few episodes <laughs> of the new Fuller House myself. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> Scott Weinger, nothing against Scott Weinger, who I'm sure is a lovely person, not Middle Eastern. And no, not even a little not bit. Even, and they weren't even trying to cast an actor who might not sound like he was from the 1990s. I mean, <laughs> sounds more like he's right off of Beverly Hills 90210 than he would be in the streets of a Middle Eastern city. And even in Mulan, a movie that I that I like more than Aladdin, and a movie that I think is trying to be a little bit more respectful. One of the things I talked about in the book, they cast a lot of actors who aren't Asian American. And... You know, for example, Harvey Firestein's a really talented <laughs> performer, and he's also not Asian. So it's weird that they cast him to play a Chinese soldier because he's not Chinese, and mm-hmm. no one would think he was. So no, they, not I even think, a little. You know, movies like Princess and the Frog and Moana and Coco, I think, are definitely putting things in the right direction. But it's yeah. much more recent that those, even you know, Mulan and Pocahontas, which I 
you know, Pocahontas has a lot of problems, but that movie, I think, is trying really hard to be respectful. It yeah. doesn't work, but it tries a lot more than other films. So 10 to 15 years with a couple of other exceptions, that's really when you get a little bit more forward motion progress. Would you call Pocahontas sort of the, like, turning point seems like a wrong word because we still, they still did such a bad job, but like the first time that Disney really made like a strong effort to avoid racism? Yes, I feel like that's a case where, especially since it comes three years after Aladdin, you get the sense that they were really <laughs> conscious of, hey, non-white people watch our movies and might have a problem with yeah, us. Yeah, so weird, isn't it? Gotcha. So I may have jumped the gun a little bit when I uh, theorized earlier that Disney was thinking about their African-American audience during the making of Dumbo. In the yeah, 1950s, yeah. I think so. yeah. <laughs> Considering right. that we still had like segregation, um, you know, and not just the type we have now, but you know, the government mandated type. I think perhaps, yeah, they weren't worrying so much about their audience. Right. I'm so ready to move on to Bambi. Is that is that our next song? Is it Bambi? Where at least they're just mm. all deer. <laughs> they're not coded yeah. as any race, as far as I know. I'll have to watch it again. I guess we might find out that there's like. <laughs> well, aren't they white-tailed? Aren't they white-tailed deer? Well, they can be white-coated, that's fine. Yeah, that's they can fair. make all the stereotypes about white people if they want. It's about damn time someone did. But. Well, let's go back to the song, and we can give our thoughts now and give our ratings so everyone knows how much we love this really problematic song. Um, Amanda, do you want to go first? Oh, thanks, Frodo. I appreciate that. You're such a good friend. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> throw me, Dive in. Throw me right onto that yellow bus. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, I... So I'm struggling with this one a little bit because I know for Roustabouts I just didn't rate mm-hmm. it because uh, that was just like so absurdly racist that to rate it for me at least felt like just giving it more credit than it was due. I do want to rate this one because I feel like the song still exists and that it was more the performance that's super problematic than the song itself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's still got a lot of problematic elements, but the, the performance is the bad part. That being said, I'm still going to give it a three out of ten um, elephant ears. So it's still going to keep, and these again are crunchy elephant ear pastries, not Dumbo's elephant ears. I switched over because the whole thing made me uncomfortable. Yeah, we're not not poaching elephants to get their ears for this purpose. We are not. In fact, no one should poach elephants for anything, save elephants. Don't be racist. Those are the two big mottos from Dumbo coming out. (laughs) Um, But I think that, like, I'm giving it a few points just because I do think it's catchy and it's jazzy. And if the song was sung, like, without the animation and by an African-American singer, I'd be super into it. I can't be because of the way it is, so I'm going to stick with the three, keeping it. I think that's the lowest score I gave to a Dumbo song, besides, taking Russ Bass out, because mm-hmm. I just didn't grade that. So, yeah. It's actually, but, you gave the clown song also a three out of ten, just so you know. Okay, well, <laughs> maybe I'll give the clown song like a 3.1, because yeah. at least that one was just, like, <laughs> boring and bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm going to give my thoughts now. A few more th- things that I have to say about the song. First of all, I think the arrangement of the song is nice, which I'm assuming was... It, the song was written by Oliver Wallace, but I'm assuming that the Hall Johnson Choir took some liberties in arranging it. I like the background singing that goes along with the lead crow's vocals. You have sort of doo-doos, da-das of the background singers. There's harmonies. I like how there's sort of a balance of the speaking, that sort of talk singing that goes through the verses, but then when you get back to the chorus, you have the but I've been done seen about everything, the uh, the actual singing of the chorus and the melody, the and the melody of the chorus coming through. So I like that, and I like sort of the flow of the song in that way. I do think the animation is very limited, uh, and I mean, I, and Josh, if you have anything to say about the animation, we didn't talk too much about that, but uh, 
if you notice, it's really just the characters with a pretty plain blue background of the sky. It yeah, seemed to I mean, me like it's, they it's were... definitely like another low budget animation moment. Like, yeah. I like the moment when they all land. Well, that's later actually, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, but it's it's pretty much just depicting the characters with a plain background. They even have the wrong voices. <laughs> Or the, or the voices of the birds switch throughout the song. Great, Sometimes you perfect. have the the low voice, which I think was maybe James Basket. He sings as one of the crows, but then he's singing as another crow. <laughs> so I, I really think that Disney was kind of like, you know what, we're just going to have all these crows moving their mouths, and then we'll sync up the song later. It's pretty lazy in that way. So putting that all together, the racism, the fact that the animation's not great, but that the song is all right... I'm going to give it a C-, minus, so a little bit worse than average, and my grade is specifically going to be minus for uh, mostly racist. That's what it stands for. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, we've given our thoughts. Josh, if you want to give it a rating, you can, or yeah. any other thoughts you have on the song. I, I mean, it's funny. I probably will have a straight average a rating like a C or I guess a five out of ten uh, elephant ear pastries. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the melody of the song is bouncy enough that you know it's not something that I ever recoil against. If I hear just the instrumental version, uh, right. you know, when I'm listening to Disney theme park music or something, I like the tune of it, and I think that the lyrics outside of the chorus are witty and literally any other you know and any black performer I would enjoy hearing them sing this, but. Cliff Edwards' presence is just painful. I will say, in terms of the animation, I do like the animation throughout the film. It's definitely lower scale, you know, watercolor paint as opposed to oil paint. But I, I do like the visual style of the film, even when there's maybe not as much detail as there is in other early Disney films. But yeah, that's my thought. Oh, cool. Well, thanks again to Josh Spiegel for joining us on this episode. It really was great to have you on because we've been struggling and trying to figure out how to address all of the racist elements of Disney and it was great to have someone who's looked into this a little bit more than our quick Wikipedia dives to <laughs> to really dig this hey, up. Hey, so, sometimes I go for other article websites. Yeah, originally I was looking in books but I actually couldn't find a good book about Dumbo so, uh, sorry Dumbo. Sorry audience if you have been disappointed that I haven't had a, a nice thick reference book on Dumbo to, to resort <laughs> I'm sure to. for Bambi we'll have plenty more options. Well, you'll, Maybe, you'll yeah. have a lot of options for Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos. There's that great South oh. of the Border book from Disney. You should check that out. It's great. Hey, All perfect. Right. I mean, we got to get it on fast because I heard the rumor that Three Caballeros, the ride at Epcot, is going to be replaced by a Cocoa ride. Sure. So we got to, you know, we got to listen up to Three Caballeros while there's still a ride for people to, like, be a little bit concerned about, but also sit nice in the cool shade after you drink a margarita. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we have Saludos Amigos is actually the one after Mambi, I believe. So we'll be there. You go. We'll, we'll be there pretty yeah. close. We'll be coming up right on it. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So. Yeah, and yeah, uh, thank you so much. You want to remind everyone the name of your podcast one more time and the name of your book? Absolutely. It's Mousterpiece Cinema is the podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts are available. I actually have two books out. I didn't mention the other one because it wasn't about race. Uh, There's Walt's Original Sins and then there's Pixar and the Infinite Past. They're both available at Amazon and at ThemeParkPress.com. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. And now Amanda and I are going to move on and talk about other things. So get out of here. Yeah, back into the carousel of rotating guests. Get out of here. 
Well, now that it's just us, Amanda, we can we can really get into the heavy, uh, high level stuff. I yeah. can stretch, and this podcasting <laughs> room has so much more space now with that three of us in it. It's getting a little bit of crowded, and also a little bit a little bit heavy with all of the the racism talk. Not that we should forget about racism, but I think it's it'll be nice to. Uh, to look at the picture as a whole rather than just focusing on, on some of the more down moments of well, the Well, let's movie. do it. But first, we should finish up the plot of Dumbo because, like, it doesn't stop when you see an elephant no. fly. He's got to fly all sorts of places. Yeah, that's actually true. He does fly at least two more times in the movie. Mi- no, three. What? I think he flies three times. Well, all right. Well, the first time he flies again <laughs> is once the song ends, the crows have made fun of Dumbo and Timothy decides to make them feel bad about themselves essentially yeah. he says you know you look at you guys picking on this poor little orphan and this causes the crows to turn around to realize the fault of their ways and they decide to team up with timothy to help get dumbo to fly and the way that they do this is they say through psychology and they present timothy mouse with a magic feather magic in quotes which was just plucked <laughs> from one of the crows sure they give it to Dumbo and tell him, hey, you can fly with this, and then they usher Dumbo to the edge of a cliff to see if the psychology works and if he can fly, because otherwise he will he's going to fall. fly or die, yeah. as, it, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Flight or, or fight, is that the, the correct term? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's like flight or plummet flight. to death. <laughs> flight or plummite. <laughs> uh, I actually really like that scene. It's one of my favorite of the movie, the scene where they give him the magic feather and he has to fly. The score does a cool thing when he's about to fly. There's a piece that seems like it has either a piccolo or a flute solo. I don't know if you you heard that, but yeah, piccolo or flute, and there's some strings. And it's a, it's a cool moment in the score. And then he finally takes off, and he... Of course, there has to be a little joke, so Timothy's like, well, I guess it didn't work. And then he looks down, and he's like, oh, we're flying! Hey. So, yes, Dumbo flew. Good, good job, Dumbo. Yeah, good for you, Dumbo. And then, armed with this knowledge that Dumbo can now fly... We return to the circus, where Dumbo is once again performing as a clown. This time he's really, really high up, and he has to jump off again at that moment in the clown's act. But Mm -hmm. Dumbo is armed with his magic feather. He leaps off with Timothy Mouse in tow, and they're like, yeah, we're going to fly, we're going to show everyone, it's going to be good, like, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) But he drops the magic feather. No! No! Does he die? Yes, so. The end. Oh, boy. I give Dumbo an (sighs) L. No. (laughs) No, he survives. Dumbo, yeah, Timothy Mouse is very frantically says, the the magic feather was just a gag, which I'm sure Dumbo, if he could actually speak, would have been like, what? Like, you you told me I could... It's very much like the, um, the Felix Felicis moment in Harry Potter when Hermione, like... Makes it makes Ron think that she that he gave her like lucky potion, mm. but that she didn't. Yeah, yeah. It, it turns out it was just him all along. Jumbo's ma- was... ears were the thing that were magic. Not Wait, the Frodo, was it love the whole time? No, it was not love the whole time. It was just <laughs> giant just ears. Just physics. It was his uh, strange morphology is what, is yeah, what, what did it for what him. Is, what is that one nice quote about that? The, it's, it's something like, the very things that bring you down are going to lift you up. Yeah, that is what Timothy says. And it is a nice quote. It's inspirational, one might say. Yeah, yeah. except then you remember how racist this whole movie was and it makes you likely to take any inspirational quotes from it. Yeah, uh, that's true. But Dumbo has his little triumphant moment once he 
realizes that he can fly without the magic feather and he starts flying, he attacks everyone. Uh, <laughs> he sucks up peanuts and shoots them at the other female elephants that were mean to him before. He chases the clowns into a cart and through a wall. He chases the ringmaster away. So Good moral to the story, really. The moral of the story is, if you can do something really cool like fly with like an awesome superpower, you can just beat up all those people that bullied you before. Yep, and in the background of that, you can just hear, this is the greatest show. I'm an <laughs> elephant flying real high. Gonna hit people right out of the sky. Yeah, I'm an elephant. See, I'm flying. Take that, you stupid crow! <laughs> no, the crows are his friends. Come on. He actually flies oh, never mind. Take yeah. that, you awesome crow! <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a pretty triumphant final scene. I actually like it. One thing I have written in my notes is, although the beginning of the movie is a little inconsistent, I do think that from Pink Elephants on, it builds... Yeah, those last 20 minutes are like a great story arc. Yeah, it builds an excitement. He figures out that... He can fly, he uses his flight to win, and then everything turns out awesome for him, because the last scene is, first of all, we see all these x-ray, x-ray, read all about it, newspaper images that, <laughs> that say that Dumbo is now, has a Hollywood deal, and he's you know, famous and stuff, and has a lot of money. His ears are in- insured for a million dollars, which... <laughs> but do you think he's really happy? Well, that's an interesting point, and the fact that he's signing a Hollywood deal kind of reminds me of something we talked about a long time ago in one of our earlier Dumbo episodes, and that is the famous quintuplets that were mentioned yes. in the first song, the Look Out for Mr. Stork. And they were similarly these uh, these others, these strange things, these five babies that all came from the same mother, who mm-hmm. were exploited by agents and their parents and had a Hollywood deal and had movies about them. So it made me think, is Dumbo, yeah. he's just a child, is he a similar thing? Um, it's interesting. I feel like he's going to like burn out on drugs or yeah. something like that like ten years from now. It's going to be a real shame. He'll be the next Amanda Bynes. Oh, she's <laughs> doing better. The other question I had is, what happens when he grows up? Because his ears are giant now, but will his ears mm-hmm. continue to grow as he grows, so they are always going to be big enough to be wings? Or eventually, right. will he just have normal-sized ears, and then it's like, oh, you're the elephant that used to fly. Yeah, and then he's stuck on a contract he can't fulfill, too. Right. I mean, you're a lawyer. You know all about contracts. Oh, yeah, for sure. I know that they have You don't want to break them. Yeah, you don't want to break them. They then, you, then money goes away. Yeah, that's what they taught you in law school. Yeah. That was it. That's the words. <laughs> Regardless of whether or not he has an ultimately successful and happy life. He does have his happy moment at the end when he's on the train. They sing a little part of When I See an Elephant Fly Again. The other female elephants actually sing along, and Dumbo is flying, and he goes and embraces his mother, who now has her own special cart on the train, along with her son, and everything is happily ever after. This part is nice. It's a nice ending. Mm -hmm. It's very Cinderella end of movie, like... Or Snow White in a movie. Like, it's his happily ever after, I guess, which is nice. Yeah. So he's an elephant, and he's still being exploited for work, and his contract is going to turn terrible on him. Because he probably doesn't have an agent. Do you think Timothy Timothy Jimothy Cricket's mouse could, like, really negotiate a good contract? Yeah. Well, I don't know if he could, because he is, you know, a tiny mouse that we've never seen speak to anyone else except for <laughs> elephants. The other thing is, you know, is he basically a sellout? Is Dumbo selling out? You know, he gets this nice, sweet car. He gets all the money. But I'm assuming that he didn't free all the circus, unless he invented his own circus and everyone oh, but just they hangs were, out. Oh, they were mean to him. That's true. Yeah, screw him. They were. You can't blame him for that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Screw him. I'm going straight to the top. Yeah, he's not going to be their golden ticket. You know. And why see an elephant's coming? 
one trunk, two ears, one me. Well, yeah. Annie for you. <laughs> Annie's also a thing about a child that has a weird <laughs> morphological characteristic, red hair. There you go. Yeah. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of the movie overall, Frodo? What are your overall thoughts on Dumbo? Besides racist. You know, when I first watched it, I kind of thought, you know, what's the what's the point of this? And I've said a few times now that I think the beginning's inconsistent and it gets better as it goes. And I think that's true. I think that it, although the story's a little more coherent than we saw with Pinocchio, the fact that the animation is simple, and I know that we just had Josh tell us that he liked the simple watercolor animation, mm-hmm. it, to me, it it gives the movie a little bit of a cheaper feel, and the fact that the songs are, in my mind, not as great as the earlier movies gives the score a little bit of a cheaper feel. It's It, it gives me an overall kind of stale taste in my mouth with this movie. Like, you know... It had its nice moments, but this wasn't greatness. This was this was Disney putting together something that was in its wheelhouse yeah. that could turn out good. It wasn't Disney striving for something great, um, yeah. except for, I do think, Pink Elephants on Parade. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that, like, the beauty of Disney and what Disney... When Disney is doing what it does best is when it tries to push the envelope. Mm-hmm. And this so rarely accomplished that. Like, I think I have similar thoughts to you. Like... I've also been, like, struggling a lot with the idea of, like, is this movie worth preserving? It's kind of a big thing just because it has so many problems. Like, I feel like at this point, the word racist has, like, lost all meaning. Like, you know, when you say, like, bowl, 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 bowl over and over again, it doesn't sound like a word anymore. That's, like, where I'm getting with the word racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I, I do, like, I don't mind the animation style. I think it gives it, like, a fun nursery, like, very simple sort of feel. I think there are some really beautiful moments. But I actually feel pretty similarly to this, ironically enough, as I feel about The Greatest Showman. If, the, if it was just some of the songs, and you took out the whole connecting story, and you ignored some of the worst songs, then those <laughs> songs are worth keeping. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't think that justifies keeping the whole movie around for me. Like, I wouldn't show this to my kids if I had kids, you know? Like, I don't think that's where... I don't think that it's any part of it is good enough to, like, keep passing along these really problematic thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that if I was going to show this to my kids, I would have to get to a point where they understood right. racism. Right, you would show it to them at like a six-year-old or something like that. This right. is like, you're 12, and you're like, okay, kids, let's talk about race and Disney. <laughs> yeah. We're watching Dumbo. Maybe if I get to the point where Walt's original sins is their bedtime reading, <laughs> they'll know enough to be ready. Yeah, but when I think- you're like, okay, like, Frodo Jr., put <laughs> down your hoverboard toy, it's time to learn about Dumbo. <laughs> And they'll be like, Dad, no, no, I just want to be a lawyer. And you're like, well, you can't until you talk about racism. <laughs> uh, I think that what I'll probably do is just have them stick to consuming Dumbo the way I did as a young person through whatever equivalent of sing-along song videos there are now. I guess YouTube. Right. I'll just have them YouTube yeah, the songs. It's just YouTube. Yeah. And then just, like, skip the worst ones and tell them about them when they're older and can, like, understand why they're bad. Yeah. And, and in my mind, Look Out for Mr. Stork is a bad one, too. I know that you and Tori both like that one, but for me, I mean, that's I'm one that they don't... I mean, I liked it. I don't need to keep it. Yeah. Well, now that we're talking a little bit about which songs we like and don't like, what was your favorite song from oh, the movie? Is it even a surprise to anyone? I feel like I've been talking about it the whole time, but... Oh, wait, I can actually hear it coming in. 
Casey Jr.'s coming down the track. Whoa, wait, hold up. down the track. Casey Jr.'s back. Well, Casey Jr., you only gave a 5 out of 10. You gave Pink Elephants a 7 out of 10. You gave Look Out for Mr. Stork a 6.5. And you gave Baby Minus 6. So what has happened since I Casey Jr.? deeply regret that decision because, gosh darn it, Frodo, that song's been stuck in my head for, like, <laughs> we probably recorded that, like, over a month ago now, yeah. I guess, in, like, real time. And, like, not a day has gone by where I haven't turned to someone, usually Dustin, who, boy, is less happy with me as a person now and just been mm. like, Casey Jr.'s coming down the track, <laughs> coming down the track, Casey Jr.'s back. If you took the whole movie and you took it away and you made it just the Casey Jr. sequence, this would be an infinitely better movie. <laughs> Maybe you put Look Out for Mr. Stork on one end of it to, like, mm. lead into it. That works yeah. fine still. And you can see that fun Florida animation of the map, which is what Florida really looks like. But, like, I can honestly get rid of every other song in this movie and keep Casey Jr., and I'd be perfectly happy moving forward with my Disney career. So, officially, what is your new Casey Jr. grade? I'm giving it an 8.5 out of 10. All right. All right. 8.5. I'm jotting that down in, in the old notes. Yep, uh, and you know why it isn't a 10? Why not? It could, it could keep going longer. <laughs> That's true. I'd be fine with it. Yeah, it's not presented in a way that makes it easy to consume as a song, you know. I can't it, take it to karaoke. It's pretty short and so like mm-hmm. that makes it harder. Yeah. I can't like this can't be my first dance in my wedding, you know. Now, do you ever sing to Dustin the part that goes every time his funny little whistle sounds? <laughs> I don't, but I'm gonna right now. Yes. As soon as we, as soon as we press pause in this recording, I'm like, "Dustin, every time your funny little whistle sounds." Yeah. And then he won't marry me, but like worth it, I think. Yeah. No, it's definitely worth it, because yeah. who wants to marry someone that doesn't enjoy Casey Jr. as much as you? That's that's the foundation of a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Don't tell him, but it will be in our vows, so. Mm. <laughs> Spoilers. Dustin, every time I hear your funny little whistle, <laughs> toot toot. <laughs> I know I love you. Um, I just know I'll never stop coming down the track, coming down the track. <laughs> Well, my favorite song, I think it's pretty obvious since it's currently my highest rated Disney song of all Disney songs. Was Which is Pink- still absurd to yeah. me, but here we go. Is Pink Elephants on Parade. I loved it. I gave it an A+. I think, like we said, it's the time that they push themselves in this movie, and we both appreciate when Disney pushes itself, themself, himself? I don't know. Um, we're sort of... Yeah, sometimes-, sometimes I say, like, us as if I'm part of them still. <laughs> yeah. like- <laughs> so it's, sometimes it's hard to tell if, if we're talking about Disney as the company or Walt himself because you know it's right. it's not always clear how much well, especially early he was an Disney auteur. like this it all's pretty connected. Right. He was not an auteur at this time but he had his hand in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I that's my favorite. I do like Casey Jr. I think that was probably my second highest rated. Yes, that yeah. was my second highest rated from the movie, but to me it's Pink Elephants on Parade is a tier above the other songs and it goes all the way down to some pretty uh pretty rotten stuff at the bottom. Well, as per usual, we can agree to disagree, except for the stuff at the bottom. We yeah. both know that sucks. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> awesome. And then next we get to do Bambi, but before that we get to have a special, like, in-between season song, mm, which yeah, is always bonus. fun. Yeah. Um, also, when we come back, like, I'll be married. Whoa. That'll be fun. Mm. Yeah, for Bambi. So I'll have a whole new perspective on, like, you know... Like when when it's just the when it's just Bambi's mom, maybe I'll be able to connect with her more because yeah. she too is is a wife, I guess. No, I have I to know. I have to ask this. So for our audience, I've never seen Bambi all the way through. Oh man, really? So th- yeah, this is going to be a 
pretty cool experience because if you're going to be hearing my first impressions of this. I have no childhood background. I know the song April Showers, but that's it. That's all I know. Uh, I can tell. There's not much more to it than that, but. We can get more into it when we be in Bambi. Mm -hmm. But I do have to ask can Bambi talk? I don't remember. (laughs) I think Bambi can. (laughs) Hopefully, Bambi can talk. I think Bambi can talk. I'm 96.5% sure Bambi can talk. No, Bambi, I actually got the VHS for my first birthday, and my parents were horrified that someone had given that to me as a one year old. Well, yeah, we'll. we'll, we'll, It's dramatic. We'll talk more about that when we get there. Yeah, I, I do hope that he can speak because. I think one of the drawbacks of voiceless elephants. Right. I think one of the drawbacks of this movie, Dumbo, is that the main character can't speak, and so we're forced to listen to Timothy Mouse, who it's kind of unclear what his motivations are, except to be like Dumbo's <laughs> friend and the guy who can speak for him. Um, right. We'll also see if Tim Burton can figure out how to handle this whole non-speaking thing. Maybe. Oh, I, I bet he can't. Yeah. I bet he can't. <laughs> Um, also, I want to throw out a congratulations. Speaking of babies, I want to throw out another congratulations to a previous guest, Shana, yes. who had a baby. Yay! Yes, Shana Patrick, who was on the episode when we talked about Someday My Prince Will Come. She now has a child. Yes, and boy, that child's going to love Disney, or oh, else yeah. it'll be disowned, I guess. But, yeah. like, so congratulations to Shana. We're mm-hmm. all very happy for you, and we're excited for your baby to be a guest on our podcast. Probably mm-hmm. next, by Bambi, that they should talk, right? That's oh, how yeah. things work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Cool. I know a lot about children, so. <laughs> Feel pretty good about this one. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another season of Wish Upon a Star. Yes, it's over. It's been an up and down ride, but I'm glad that you stuck on and held on for another great season of Wish Upon a Star, talking about another Disney movie. And I hope you join us again for our next movies and our next episodes. This has been Frodo the Lawyer. This has been Amanda the Person. And thank you for listening to Wish Upon a Star. Clap, 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 clap